Our text today is uh, Matthew 25, 14 through 30, the parable of the talents. I invite you to read along as I read it out loud, either on the screen or in your Bibles. Okay, Matthew 25, 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and trusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He had received the five talents, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, how do you feel when you read this parable. Some people may feel really good, excited, positive. Anybody here feels that way? And then I think there are people, when they read this parable, they feel a bit uncomfortable. Anybody there? And uneasy. Afraid. Anybody feel afraid? You know, this is true in America and in China. Same variation of response. I think there are a lot of things about this parable that bother us. We think about the various aspects of the story, and to some of us, It seems that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. 
I mean, that third servant cast into outer darkness. For other of us, may, we may say, well, it looks like Jesus is teaching about salvation based on works or performance, right? And that bothers us. And then there may be some among us who look at this master and they think, you know, he is biased. He is treating his employees unequally based on his own subjective decision making. And that bothers us. And then there are probably many of us sitting here today who look at that third servant and we say, you know, that guy seems like an open, honest guy. You know, he didn't didn't do anything with the money, you know, but he was honest about what was going on in his heart. And his explanation sounds to many of us reasonable. Furthermore, we say, you know, he really didn't do too badly compared to a lot of us who put our money in Wall Street and then you the financial crisis comes. He has done pretty good. He at least returned the entire principle to his master, right? And the third servant presents himself as a victim, doesn't he? You know, and he may look like a victim. To many of us, and we think, you know, he got no second chance. That poor guy. We sympathize with the third servant. Many of us, don't we? And today, we're tempted to ask what his adversity score is. (laughs) What factors in his background do we need to consider? And shouldn't we give that guy a handicap? Maybe he should be admitted to Stanford. <laughs> and to some of us, finally, the master looks like a cruel, harsh man, unforgiving, only interested in money. Right? These things bother us about this parable. Now, Jesus told this parable, it's recorded in Matthew 24, in the immediate context, he's talking about his return, second coming. Actually, he's talking about the delay between his first coming and his second coming, that interim time period, and his followers who were living during that interim time period what they need to think about and do, you know. And so you have themes in this context here talking about judgment, accountability, the need to be ready. His followers are entrusted with certain things and it's viewed as a test that they're going to have to report to the Lord about. 
We live in that time period. <laughs> this applies to us, right? So, what does it say to us today? Well, some people may read this parable and they think, you know, the application here is that I need to be working like crazy. You know, I better have a lot to report and to show when Jesus comes again. And some people think, well, the application is, well, I really need to be afraid for my own salvation. Others perhaps look at this parable and they say, I just try not to think about it. <laughs> because I know that salvation is by grace through faith alone, and this doesn't fit with my theological picture. <laughs> and so I'm just going to go about my business and hope that I come out like servant one or two, you know, and not like servant three. Well, I hope as we dig into this parable and consider its teaching we can clear up some misconceptions and come up with some good conclusions as to its meaning and application. Now, I like to do my Bible study with observation, interpretation, and application steps. Most of you know that. Good inductive Bible study principles. So you start with observation. What does it say? Well, this is about four people, right? The master and three servants. Four characters in this story that Jesus told. So let's talk a little bit about that master. Just from what the text says, how would you describe that master guy? Well, the first thing I think we notice is that he has some money. Matter of fact, he is fabulously wealthy. And this may be obscured to many of us modern readers because we have no idea what a talent is, you know. When he says talent here, he's talking about money. He's not talking about whatever you can do, your skills, your gifts, your abilities. He's talking about money, right? This is a parable that focuses on the finances. And... I did my research and looked up in my commentaries, and maybe some of you have a note at the bottom of your study Bible or something that tells you what a talent is worth. The best I can come up with is that one talent is worth about 20 years of labor for a common, ordinary laborer. And so I did my little computations according to Oregon minimum wage. I think it's supposed to go up here pretty soon. And multiply it by 20 years, and I get about $450,000. That's one talent. Okay. So the guy who got five talents got over $2 million. Now, that's pretty good money. And this guy gave out more than you know, he got eight talents. That's a lot of money. And we know he's fabulously wealthy. Because when the first talent guy comes and reports that he got five talents more, he says, oh, you have been faithful with a little. <laughs> Do you notice that? A this guy is not exhausting his wealth to these three guys. It's pocket change. Okay. 
fabulously wealthy. So that's, he's a good guy to know. He's trusting. I mean, or entrusting. I mean, he's, he's willing to take this money. It's worth significant money and put it under the management of others. Which indicates, because he's going on this trip and going to be gone for who knows how long, he's kind of a practical man, you know? He's not there. He can't watch, you know, whatever is happening, you know? So, he's practical. And you look at his uh, behavior on his return, and he seems pretty generous and rewarding, at least towards the faithful servants, right? Treats them pretty well, I would say. But he's not a pushover. You can't be a slouch, you know, and slide by with social promotion. This guy demands that you give an account. And, you know, he's pretty severe towards the unfaithful. Matter of fact, he's alleged to be a hard man. So that's this guy, the, the master. Now let's think about the servants. Three servants. What factors were the same for all three servants? You ever thought about that? What did they have the same? They were entrusted with money. Significant amounts of money. Time. Same length of time. Right? They all had the same length of time. Same master. Right? Okay, they all had, uh, it looks, similar opportunity. Because we don't detect in the parable that there is any hierarchy among these servants such that the one who got the five talents is somehow directing or managing the one who had the two talents or that sort of thing. There's not this kind of, you know, pecking order. They're all free, apparently to do with the amount of money that they have received. They all had to give an account. Another thing is the same, is they all got exactly the same instructions, right? What instructions did they get? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing is recorded. They, he didn't tell them anything, Right? So, you realize what that implies? These three guys are responding to what they knew of their master without clear instructions, without any promise of either reward or punishment. Okay? All right. So, we got servants one and two. Those who got the five talents... And the two talents, right? About $2.3 million and $900,000. Okay. That's probably almost enough to buy a house in Sun River. Okay, let's, give these, let's personalize these guys. Let's call the guy with five talents, Phil. Nobody here named Phil, is there? I don't want to offend anybody. Okay. Phil 
runs track. Phil participated in high school, university, and he noticed that the track shoe was very important to the people who run in track, you know? And he had come across this Japanese-made track shoe that he really liked, you know? It was sturdily built and light and, you know, whatever all the good things are that go into track shoes. I have no idea. But Phil had always thought, you know, I could make a little business out of that, you know? But I don't have any capital. So all of a sudden, he's dumped $2.3 million. And he's saying, I can do my dream. I can set up my business now. I can make trips to Japan. I can find the company that made this tracks you, you know. I can do contracts with them and ship, you know, they can ship the product over here. And so he began to do that, you know. And he had all these track shoes, and he was selling them out of the back of his car at track meets. And they were selling like hotcakes. And he was getting a reputation. And so he still had some capital and began to hire an accountant, you know, and a salesman. And he began to hire track shoe designers. And he wanted to come up with a good logo, you know, and rebrand these shoes. And he began to think, you know, as the money came in, I can set up my own production. You know? And he did a bang-up job. Made a lot of money. Phil's a good guy. We'll call the guy who had uh, two talents, Stan. Stan's also a good guy. He, he knows Phil, right? I mean, they work for the same master. And Stan looks at what Phil is doing and he thinks, man, that is risky. You know, he's got to go all the way to Japan. He doesn't speak Japanese. What if we have a some kind of an event, you know, financial, international financial markets, you know, or what if the president, you know, steps on the toe of the prime minister of Japan or something? We could have a big problem here. And Stan is more conservative. Plus, he also has less capital. And he says, but, you know, I know how to clean carpets. And I've got a van. I'm going to get me some carpet cleaning equipment, you know. And I'm going to find some detergents off the shelf, and I'm going to market, you know, a carpet cleaning business. And so Stan starts running around. He doesn't like the international, you know, in the local area. And, you know, he's steaming people's carpets, you know, and stuff like that. He's getting a good reputation. The... Word of mouth, you know, and then it begins to come in, you know, people like his work and he buys another van and hires another couple of people, you know, and sets up an office and stuff like this. He's making money pretty soon. It's not just cleaning carpets. He says, you know, we can clean hardwood floors. And so he expands. And then he figures out that people are interested in eco-friendly and biodegradable and carbon-friendly and all these kinds of products, hypoallergenic, you know, all these kinds of things. And so he expands his business and he gets a good, he's making good money, but without the risk that Bill was taking. Both these guys are 
faithful, capable, I think we'd say they're good businessmen, right? Hard workers, want to please their master, willing to take risks. They view the capital that they have received as a trust from, from their master. So, the master comes back, and Phil comes forward, and he tells the master all about his business, you know. And the master's response is, this is great. You are a good and faithful employee. And he promotes the guy, praises him, says, enter the joy of your master. Very good. So, what do you think about this guy? Five talents, $2.3 million. Is this somebody like Phil Knight? Set up Nike shoes, you know? Extraordinary, amazing businessman. Starting from a very low level. How many of you think of guys like this? Well, you're smarter than me when I read this parable first. Because you see, Stanley made exactly the same return on principle that he had. He got two talents. He had two talents more. They all had five talents. He returned five talents more, right? They both worked hard. They both took a risk. But it looks to me like the parable is teaching for faithful and good servants, the results are ordinary, not extraordinary, not miraculous. But what anybody who worked... Look, the master said Stan only had 40% of the ability of Phil, right? Only 40%? Only 40% of the money. He still doubled it. So once I realized that, that was encouraging to me. Let me ask you something here. Thinking about this story. Suppose Phil, when his master returned... only gave him back his principal plus three talents more. What would the master say? What do you think? Would the master cast him in the outer darkness? Would the master say, terrible and horrible servant? Would the master punish him, you know? The money to the master is a small thing. Not the main thing. What the master's looking for is what he calls good and faithful, sir. Okay, third servant. We'll call him Ralph. Nobody here by the name of Ralph? <laughs> Ralph's story is negative. A fair bit is said uh, in the parable about Ralph. And most of us look at Ralph and we think, you know, he's not such a bad guy. I mean, he didn't take that $450,000 and run off on a world trip and waste it in wild living like the prodigal, right? The master returned. He said, okay, here's your money. Gave it all back. And he has an explanation for his behavior, right? Ralph says, I was afraid 
Now, what was Ralph afraid of? Looks to me like he was afraid of the master. Right? He says, you know, I, I knew that you're a hard man. Appears that he was afraid of punishment if he lost his master's money. And so, you can insure the principle by burying it in the ground. No risk. Okay. When the master comes back uh, and he gives an account to, you know, of Ralph, whatever he's done, master's not happy. Ralph suffers severe condemnation, demotion, casting into outer darkness, which in the context of second coming looks a lot like a description of hell to me. If Ralph was afraid of his master, his worst fears upon his master's return were more than realized. The master calls him wicked, lazy, and worthless. Comments not designed to build up his self-image. Wicked because he shirked his responsibility. Lazy because he did nothing. Not even the no-brainer. Put it with the bankers, right? Then when I come back, I'll get some interest, plus my principal. And worthless because he brought absolutely no benefit to the master. It appears from the master's comments to Ralph that putting those funds in the bank was kind of the absolute minimum that he could have done to avoid his master's wrath. When I read this uh, parable, I think about references for work. You know, when you apply for a job, at least it used to be in my day, you fill out the form and put all your qualifications, and then at the bottom they have, you know, okay, list three references, right? And I think about, well, what does that tell anybody? <laughs> Depends on who those references are, doesn't it? And I think about my Lord Jesus. And if he were applying for a job and he put Peter down as one of the references, what kind of reference would he get? Peter would say, this guy is the Messiah. <laughs> this guy has all wisdom and all power, and he is gracious and generous and forgiving, you know? He would get a sterling reference from Peter. But then if the reference form were somehow sent to Caiaphas, the high priest who condemned Jesus to death, among others, what kind of reference would he give Jesus? Completely negative. Say, this guy is leading people astray. This guy is a liar and a pretender, right? But it's the same person, Jesus. Two different, completely different points of view. It seems to me that there are different points of view that Ralph and Stan, on the one hand, have of their master and, if I got the names wrong, Phil and Stan versus Ralph, right? 
Ralph got the one talent. They seem to have completely different views of their master. Ralph says the master is a hard man. And let me tell you, he uses hard words to talk about his master. He says, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you scattered no seed. Now, is that a positive view of somebody or a negative view? Pretty negative view, wouldn't you say? What kind of person does that? Reaps where they have not sown. A cheat? A liar? An abuser? He's saying at least you are predatory. Other people do the work and you take all the benefit. Now, when you get a reference, it's worth asking the question, is this an accurate reference? Right? I mean, was Ralph accurate in his description of the master? Is the master really a horrible person? Or is Ralph just mistaken? Or is Ralph lying? Worth asking, right? Check out the reference. The master hears out Ralph, and the first thing he says is, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. At least in the ESV, there's a question mark there. He's saying, I don't think he's the master is either affirming or denying the truth of what Ralph has said about him. I think he's just quoting back to Ralph what he said. But what the master does say clearly is, I don't believe you. He says, if you really believed that about me, you would have behaved differently with my money. You wouldn't have dug a hole and buried it in the ground. You would have put it with the bankers. But you didn't. I was uh, deathly afraid of all my primary school teachers. Matter of fact, I was afraid of every teacher all the way through. <laughs> but in primary school, I lived in the day when they had what they call corporal punishment. And, you know, back in those middle-aged caveman days, some of my teachers would take, take a, a student up to the front of the class and actually whip the guy or maybe the girl in front of the class. And I would tremble in my shoes. I was afraid. I did not want to risk the wrath of the teacher. I didn't want to risk the displeasure or the disapproval. I didn't want to risk anything. So I was a really good student. <laughs> That's how I avoided that kind of punishment, right? You do, you really listen, you keep your notebook open and write down everything the teacher says and you do your homework and turn it in on time and you know, you, you read the lessons and you participate. 
I did all that stuff. And I did pretty well in school. And I avoided punishment from my teachers. That's what this master is saying about Ralph. He says, on the assumption that I am hard and merciless, you should have been all the more diligent. You should have thought up at least the no-brainer. Put the money in the bankers with the bankers, and then when I come, I got the principal plus interest. And you didn't have to do anything, and there's no risk. So something else is going on in Servant 3's heart other than just fear. Something else in his view of the master that the master detects. So I think this parable is not about earning your salvation by works. It is not about losing your salvation by neglect or negligence. It's not teaching us that our value in the Lord's eyes depends on our productivity. It's not encouraging us as fellow servants of the Lord to be inspecting one another's ministries and fruit and judging and comparing each other. That's not what the purpose of this parable is. The master is not fundamentally concerned about the money. He's concerned about the people, their hearts. And the key here is the relationship between the master and the servants. The master's expectations are not unreasonable. Matter of fact, he doesn't tell them anything. But somehow, Phil and Stan were moved, were motivated to take this money, which they knew was a trust, take some risk, work, and get a good result. Which apparently was not extraordinary, but ordinary. They had the right heart attitude, the right view of their master, the right relationship with their master. Ralph did not. He did less than the absolute minimum. And his view of the master was completely different. As D.A. Carson, in his commentary on Matthew, says, the third servant's failure betrays his lack of love for his master. I would go further. I would say what controlled the third servant's behavior is not just lack of love, but something more, maybe even spite towards his master. Because he didn't do the absolute minimum. It's like he wanted to, to try to get by by hurting his master, not doing anything with his money, not even interest. So how do we apply this? Well, in the context of our relationship with Jesus, we're in that interim period between the first and the second coming. We're waiting on his return. We know we have a stewardship. We know we're going to have to give an account. And... 
I think from this parable we can expect rewards for faithful service. I, I think there's that in this parable. The key is bearing fruit. Fruit versus no fruit is the big contrast here in this parable. Who bears fruit for the Lord? Well, those who walk with Him, who love Him, who abide in Him, obey Him, maintain a right relationship with their Lord. As Jesus teaches in John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So the crux here is not competition, it's not just crass productivity, visual measures of success, it's not frantic busyness. It's relationship. Love for our Lord and those who love the Lord. They do want to use their resources to serve Him, to expand His kingdom. They're proactive. They look for ways to serve. So let's wholeheartedly serve our Master out of love and by His grace and for His kingdom.